This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is attorney Ramsey Rammerman who has 20 years of experience litigating open government and First Amendment cases. He's also highly versed in public records issues. And Section 230. Section 230 governs the way in which the government perceives of social media companies as either platforms or as publishers. And Section 230 is brought up quite a bit when YouTubers and people that are concerned with social media talk about censorship, freedom of speech, and the balance of powers between social media companies and the end user. Now, I didn't know a lot about Section 230, even though it has a big impact on my well-being. So I'm very grateful that Ramsey had some time to spend to school me on these issues, and I'm very proud to offer his expertise to you. Without further ado, here is Ramsey Rammerman. What got you into First Amendment issues and social media? You've written a couple articles, at least, that you shared with me, but it sounds like you put a lot of thought into that. Yeah, so I, um, I started getting my main area of focus is on open government issues. And one of the cases I had um, about 10 years ago now was dealing with the issue of metadata and when metadata is part of a public record. And so the case itself dealt with the issue of whose copy of an email did the city need to produce? And the request wanted a copy of an email sent to one council member and the city had produced an email, the same email, but sent to a different council member. And while the, the email looks the same, under the metadata underneath it is not going to be the same. Um, and just simply because part of the metadata collects the path the email takes to the internet, and if it goes to different people, it's going to have a slightly different path. Um, and so I had been litigating that for a couple of years, and when the court ruled that the metadata was part of the public record, um, it got me thinking about social media. Um, because there, you know, the usually the user's not going to have access to all the underlying code and metadata. So it's going to, um, you know, they're not going to be able to um, produce that metadata. And um, if somebody requests their social media posts, they can do a screenshot or whatever, but they aren't going to be able to produce the underlying code, which is going to be part of the metadata. So that just got me interested in it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and I've always been interested in First Amendment issues. I had been litigating um, First Amendment, a couple First Amendment cases um, for a while, dealing with the rights of association. 
And so when I started looking at this issue of public records and social media, um, I quickly saw that there's also a huge First Amendment issue or a couple of huge First Amendment issues. That just got me interested in it. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've done a bunch of presentations on the issues and such. And none of them directly deal with Section 230. But obviously, once you're interested in First Amendment issues and social media, um, you'll be drawn to Section 230 issues. And so then I've just been following them and, and looking at it. And that's got inspired me to write, as you said, a couple articles mm-hmm. for The Federalist. And, mm-hmm. um, I've also been doing... Um, really tracking the the Trump versus Knight case, which was now Biden versus Knight that the Supreme Court just rejected cert on. This is the one with Justice Thomas's opinion, um, because I found that to be just a, it's a fascinating issue dealing with the rights of association um, and the rights of speech. And so, um, and that's something that's very real to the attorneys that I, I speaking to in my presentations because they're all municipal attorneys and so they have to give guidance to elected officials um on this issue so in in uh, in what capacity and with regards to officials uh speaking or uh, hanging out with the wrong people is that what it is well no it's, it's it's more the issue of um first the the issue of whether you create a forum and whether, you know, people responding have um, any First Amendment right to comment on what you're saying, um, and then whether you can block them or or otherwise, you know, not engage with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like that's... Like on a website, yeah, I guess, exactly. basically, generally, okay. I mean, and, and really what the, the, the Court of Appeals decision in Trump versus, or Knight versus Trump, this is the Knight... Um, First Amendment uh, Foundation from Columbia Law School. They sued President Trump for blocking people. And by blocking people, he was excluding them from his comment section. And so the issue in that case, it, you know, became becomes whether you've created a, a public forum or not um, when you're when when they're using this space, it's kind of like I think Justice Thomas analogizes it to, um, you know, if government runs rents out a private hotel room for a you know a public meeting, then that private hotel private hotel room suddenly becomes a public forum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the issue is what is happening on social media um, when a, a politician. Um, is you know, using social media. And um, so the, the Court of Appeals had ruled that Trump's Twitter feed was a public forum, um, primarily because he was using that to make official pronouncements on behalf of the United States. Um, but the issue is really much more complicated than that, because while Trump used it as, a, as the president, he also used it as a political actor. And in a political actor, he's acting as a private individual. Um, And as a private individual, he has a First Amendment right to choose who he associates with when he's talking politics. And so, um, you know, the court had to kind of determine which of those characteristics predominate. And they held for Trump that it was sufficiently a public forum because he was using it for official pronouncements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he could take unilateral action over Twitter as well, in theory. Um, 
Although that's, you know, well, like nuke the servers or storm well, like when he, <laughs> the offices of Twitter, that, that like he was waiving any confidentiality protection and ordering the release of certain records. Um, okay. So that would be now a court has subsequently ruled that that actually was not binding, but we didn't know that for sure. Wow. Um, he used okay. it for official diplomacy, like his uh, tweets at the Kim Jong-il or whatever the name of the current, uh, North Korean dictator is. Um, and so, but again, you know, it's official communications. Um, and so that's the official use, but he obviously used it for private use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, and it, it gets, you know, it further complicated by whether the person is an executive or, um, because a legislative official never has the ability to exercise official authority unilaterally. They only can exercise authority as, as with their other legislators. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas an executive official can take unilateral action. So maybe could use Twitter um, for official action like the president had. Hmm. Um, and so it's just advising municipal attorneys who need to advise their council members and mayors and such on, you know, how to use social media uh, it also comes into play in just any of the any of the city's websites. Anytime you're allowing comments from the public, you have the issue of are you creating a forum or not? And so I've been tracking. There's been a bunch of cases dealing with that even outside of the social media sphere. But just anytime you're allowing comments, mm-hmm. um, are you creating a website? You know, and if you allow if a city has allows advertising on a website, you know, what are the rules there? Have they done it in a way they can open it up? Um, to create, make it a public forum, or they can keep it uh, government speech, which is not a public forum. Um, and so, the issue gets it obviously gets really into the weeds here. But yeah, really sticky. Um, and uh, you know, I think the um, and I'd be happy. I think it would you know I'd be happy to talk about you know the the nuances of what creates a public forum or not. But um, we'll need a few more hours for that. So. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I guess um, what would be most useful for for myself and my audience is kind of understanding the lay of the land with regards to public uh, or private citizens and private companies. Uh, so. People talk about 230. Nobody's really explained it to me. I'd be really well served by like a brief primer on that if if you feel competent in doing that. And then kind of mapping out, uh, you know, the tensions between, you know, free speech versus private platforms versus uh, private citizens. Yeah, no, this is uh, definitely would be um, uh, more than willing to do that. So... I think the easiest way is to start with what Section 230 says um, and then talk about what the law was like before Section 230 was enacted to kind of determine its purpose, um, which I think helps helps un- helps one understand what exactly Section 230 really is doing. Um, and then we can talk about um, you know what can be done, and that kind of gets into what Thomas, Justice Thomas, has been talking about in a couple of his uh, opinions recently. Mm-hmm. So, Section 230 is um, it's Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, mm. and it has um, a variety of sections, but the one that everybody cites to is Subsection C, and Subsection C has um, two 
two sa- two sub subsections. Um, and would it be helpful? I could put it up on this. I could share my screen with you and have I could put that in later. Uh, okay, it'd be okay. easier for me to edit. Maybe you can okay. send me the uh, thing. Okay, you could read from it though, and I'll I can throw it up there. Yeah, no problem. Um, but so section one or section C one is um, entitled treatment as a publisher or speaker. So let me actually take a step back. So 230 sub C is called protection for good Samaritan blocking and screening of offensive material. And then in sub one is treatment of publisher or speaker. And it states that um, no uh, provider or user of interactive computer services, which is basically social media, shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And so what this first section is saying that um, a social media company is not going to be liable for the speech of users who publish that speech on, on their website. Um, and then section two is, is entitled civil liability, and it says no provider or user of interactive computer services, so social media, shall be held liable on account of, and then sub A is, um, any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers obscene, lewd, and it goes on for a while and then ends with, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. And sub B deals with spam filters. Um, mm-hmm. So basically what this is saying is that normally um, – well, let's let's take a step back here and um, talk about what the law was before, because that will explain what they're trying to do with this. So, generally, um, the, the courts have recognized that um, obviously someone is liable for their own speech, but they've also looked at when are you liable for other people's speeches, and the courts have generally held that, or have, have exclusively held that, the publisher of someone else's writing is liable just as to the same extent that the author is. And this is because a publisher has, you know, has editorial ability to change that speech any way they want before they publish it. Okay. Yeah. And therefore they're considered to be on full notice of what it is and they're fully liable for that. The courts have also recognized that other people involved in the delivery of speech have different level, a different level of liability, and these are distributors. And so the dr- distributor is the, you know, the vehicles that deliver the published writings to retail outlets and then the retail outlets themselves. And here the court has held that the distributor is only liable for um, speech that is either um, defamatory or obscene if the distributor knows or has reason to know that it's obscene or defamatory. Um, and so that's, in general, your bookstore is not going to be liable for defamatory content in books it sells unless it knows it's defamatory. Um, now, defamation, you're almost a uh, 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 a distributor is almost never going to know speech is actually defamatory. Um, 
because there's, you know, how do you know something is truly false? And it has to be more than false. It has to be able to deceive someone. Um, and so usually that doesn't come into play, but it hmm. does come into play with obscenity, which is basically what it's saying is if you see a nearly naked girl on the cover of a magazine, you have a duty to open it up to see if the content is obscene or not. <laughs> um, so that's kind of how that played out. Um, so you had these two levels of liability. Um, and then um, and the publisher's um, ability to edit is really important because that's rooted in the First Amendment right of association. The editor has the right to choose who they publish and and has full control to edit it and such. And the Supreme Court has previously said that um, the right to respond was the laws that were passed um, in the 60s and 70s that said if somebody says something bad about you, you have a right to respond. And they would require newspapers to basically publish editorials by someone responding. And the Supreme Court said that's unconstitutional because a publisher has the right to choose who he associates with or not, okay. and the government can't force him to associate you can't force a publisher to associate with somebody they don't want to. Um, and so that's part of the justification for making the publisher liable for who they publish because they have complete control of whether or not they publish someone. Um, okay, so um, we get to, um, we have the distributor liability and the publisher liability. And then we start, then social media starts up. And there's two early cases that deal with um uh, this issue um, dealing with message boards. So this is 19, you know, 1990s, early 1990s. Um, so very, very, not even really social media, but these message boards. And so the first case is the Chubby case, um, and it's Chubby versus. Uh, so it's Chubby versus CompuServe, and. In that case, CompuServe had um, message had, had these message boards, but it did not do any editing, any you know uh, screening or anything. It was just the wild west, and so they uh, CompuServe was serve, sued for li libel based on posts that were made by you know some anonymous user, and the court and the so Chubby said or CompuServe said, well, we're not liable. We're just a distributor. And, of course, the plaintiff said, no, you're a publisher. Um, and the court looked at it and said, well, given that CompuServe doesn't do any type of editing, they are just a distributor. And so they weren't liable. And Which, so that case... Is this kind of the origin of the publisher versus platform? The yeah. Distributor and platforms yeah, equitable? Yeah, they get used interchangeably. Okay, okay, good. Um, and so that was the first case. Then the second case was um, Stratton Pork. Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy, another message board case. But in this case, Prodigy had put itself out as a family-friendly message board because, of course, by 1994 or so, when this case first came up, um, they had already learned the lesson that if you allow people to publish whatever they want on the Internet, they will. And so this was a family-friendly. So they had um, rules against, you know, obscene conduct and swearing and such. And they had a, a person assigned to each of the message boards that was supposed to kind of look through. And then they had a, a screening mechanism that caught certain words that would block a post. 
um, but pretty light editing still, um, but some well of, uh, level of editing. And so they were sued again for um, defamation. And here the court said, well, you are actually engaging in editing. Editing power is a the power of a publisher. So you're a publisher and therefore you're liable for all of the speech um, on your message boards as a publisher. And so that case, if it had held, it would have just killed the internet right there because it's just not realistic to expect a social media site to be able to ensure that what everybody else posts is not yeah. defamatory. Um, and so that led to the adoption of Section 230. And so, and it, so it has its first provision saying, you know, the treatment of publisher speaker saying that the social media companies shall not be treated as a publisher of other people's content. And then civil liability um, saying that um, they aren't going to be liable for when they edit or censor conduct. And then it gives a list of whether it's obscene or lewd or lascivious or filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. Yeah, which and is the sneaky one. And it's done in good faith. Um, now, I think that one of the problems that we've had is that um, if you look at the um, two cases I just discussed, there was this link between how much editing you do and whether you were going to be held as a publisher. But the language in 230 doesn't link these two provisions expressly. And so courts have generally treated this as creating two different liabilities. One for you aren't liable for other people's defamation. And then you also, a social media company also isn't liable for its censorship. Um, and, but I think that that is um, kind of... Uh, they're, it's not accurately interpreting at least um, what the law was like that they were trying to address, um, because these really ought to be linked. And I think um, really what it ought to be saying is that as long as you censor in good faith, you won't be held liable as a publisher. Um, and, and there that would have would to be some sort of reasonable uh, level of evidence that good or bad faith is being uh, applied. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And if if you could, if we could require all censorship by social media companies to be done in good faith, then that would, you know, I think resolve most of the problems. Um, because what is that? And what does that look like? So, you know, good faith as a legal term can mean a variety of things. But here, I would say um, the most reasonable interpretation of good faith would be basic due process protections. Um, and what these mean is very well defined in, you know, for government, when it enacts a law, it has to meet due process standards. So it has to provide people with fair notice of what is being censored or what is, you know, what is being prohibited. And it has to enforce those in a non-arbitrary manner. And I think that, you know, social media companies to, first off, adopt their censorship rules you know, clearly have them written out. And those rules have to be definitive enough that your average person has a good idea of what they mean. Because mm -hmm. right now what we see is social media companies have rules that say, um, you know, that they can censor you for any reason they want, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and Or no reason at all from some of them. And so 
it does, just doesn't allow the user to know what the rules are going to be in advance. Mm-hmm. And they rely on the language of otherwise objectionable to say, we can make whatever we want objectionable. And that's fine. And I think actually there's there's very good reasons to give them that broad authority. Mm-hmm. But if they had to actually adopt those reasons ahead of time before they censor you, that would that would end up providing significant protections. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that that's what the law was meant to that's, – that's how it should be interpreted. Um, and it still could be interpreted that way. The, the, the meaning of Section 230 has not been definitively established by the Supreme Court. Okay. Um, and there's actually a surprisingly few um, uh, lower court decisions that uh, deal with how these two provisions interact together. Um, and so – um, I think that there's real there's real possibility there. But so what ends up happening right now is because most people most well certainly the social media companies treat these as two separate provisions. They believe they have a right there. They can't be liable for anything anybody says, and they can censor you for any reason they want. Um, and they don't have to act. And they don't necessarily. There's no accountability there. Yeah. There's no accountability. And when these two provisions are are, are unreviewable. And that's because Could you repeat that when, when these general, two provisions are um, are when they aren't interpreted as as being conditional related to each other and they're they're treated as two separate protections. Um, there is no easy way to um, challenge the interpretation of the censorship authority to ensure it's done in good faith, um, because in general the First Amendment protects, you know, gives everybody a right to censor in bad faith if they want. We have it goes back to the publisher can choose to publish whatever work he wants to or doesn't want to. Um, and there isn't any, um, you don't have any right to force them to, you know, publish your work. Um, and so when it comes to, you know, how do we challenge, if you're saying they censored me and in, in, they didn't censor me in good faith, um, there just isn't, there generally isn't going to be a cause of action that would allow you to raise that challenge because they have a First Amendment right to censor you in bad faith. Mm-hmm. Um, is- is there significant uh, enough uh, power or, uh, I guess, teeth behind this or these provisions, Section 230, et cetera, et cetera, to put social media companies, especially big ones, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, uh, put them in the position of adopting very clear rules for censorship with good notice? Like, how do you, how do you force them to do that? And what what's the apparatus that would get them into that position? So first, if Section 230 was interpreted as conditional, it would be a way to get them there. Because what you would say is um, you are entitled to immunity for defamation because you have not censored people in good faith. Okay. Um, and so the... Um, you know, if if the, if they were conditioned on each other, it would force social media companies to act responsibly, um, and it would really, I think, really change it because not only would they have to adopt rules ahead of time, but it would also mean that any of their shadow censorship would be 
would violate the statute because um, good faith uh, necessarily includes notice of the censorship. Um, and so, so I think that generally speaking, they would be uh, their protections would be uh, discarded. The protections. That, uh, Legal protections. Yeah, all there is. Okay. Yeah. So basically, if if these two were if these two provisions are linked, um, then they would know that if they want to keep their you know immunity from defamation, they need to make sure they're acting, they're doing their censorship activities in good faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, other ways to get or get to to try and uh, force this is um, trying to figure out what causes of action. Um, are, are, can bring about a right to sue them for censoring. And so um, the case that was, dis- that was re- the Supreme Court denied cert for back in October, this was the malware bites case from the Ninth Circuit, is an example of this. And there it was a lawsuit between two uh, companies that created basically spam filters or, um, you know, web browsing filters. Um, and the there's a, the the second provision in uh, 230c um, 2b um, deal basically says that um, you also get immunity if you have a if you develop a spam filter as long as it's done in good faith for reasons you find objectionable. But what was happening here mm-hmm. was um, one of the company's malware bytes had specifically built into its filtering program something to uh, block its competitors. Oh. And so one of the competitors sued malware bytes for um, interference with business expectancy and anti-competitive under antitrust activities. And so then the Ninth Circuit, in looking at this, said, well, because this was done for an anti-competitive person purpose, it wasn't done in good faith, and therefore Section 230 immunity didn't apply. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the trying to find a, the right cause of action that would bring up something like that with defamation um, might do it. Um, but it's it's it is definitely difficult because the courts, the lower courts, have generally uniformly not linked these two provisions, and mm. they've interpreted the immunity for for um, other pe- other users' content as basically um, incredibly broad, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, what will need to happen is the right case with the right judge and the right circumstance to kind of bond those two provisions, or to to kind of reformulate how the law sees the that section. Yeah, I mean that's how we'd have to do it in the courts: is to get you know a brave judge, the right facts, and then have it go up high enough, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so that it, it either it establishes a circuit decision that will be influential or makes it to the Supreme court and gives a definitive interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you know, obviously section two thirty could be amended. I mean, you know, you could a really simple amendment is it would be to link the two. Um, you could simply stick in the word as a publisher into the second mm-hmm. section and that would link the two. And then that would make it clear. Which um, would be the legislature would do. Yeah, it would have to go through Congress. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. President Trump in September, um, the DOJ uh, put out a comprehensive um, proposal for amending Section 230 that would have done this. It would have also done some other bad stuff, but it would have um, 
linked these two and given real meat to the term good faith, because good faith could be interpreted to mean less than due process protections. It, it, it's, um, but they made it clear that that's what it was being would be required is clear notice and then a, a fair adjudicative process. Um, but obviously trying to get Congress to do anything like that controversial would be extremely difficult. Well, right now. in today's climate, what could... What could possibly yeah. go wrong? <laughs> and um, why do? What's up with uh, Justice Thomas and his recent uh, fiddling around with this or going over it? What, what's your analysis so he, of that and the content of what he's doing? Yeah, so, so he is trying to look at could we somehow restrict the ability of social media companies to censor based on viewpoint, based on political bias, um, and that's a lot harder to do. Um, because it's the government is just not, and even the courts are not well equipped to um, detect and identify political bias. But take a couple steps back here. So, what he has been arguing. So he's issued two two opinions, um, agreeing with the denial of cert, but explaining his reasons. Basically, he's taken these opportunities where the Supreme Court has denied cert in these two cases, and the justices are always allowed to. Uh, add an opinion to that denial saying why they think it's a good or a bad idea. Cert so, meaning? Um, um, the, the cert, certiorari is what okay. you, when you file something and you want the Supreme Court to review, the petition is called a cert petition, certiorari okay. petition. And so cert we use as this kind of shorthand for it. And so when the Supreme Court accepts a case, we call it granting cert. Okay. Um, and if they, and they denied it, it, but there's reasons that can be appended to yes. why. And okay. each and all each and all of the justices could say something or say nothing. Normally, the courts say nothing, but every once in a while, a justice will express their opinion. And here, um, so in the first case, in the malware bites case, he um, took it as an opportunity to kind of lay out the history that I just described to you with the um, early cases and the difference between publisher liability and distributor liability. And he and he argued in that case that. Um, you know, if Section 230 was enacted in response to the Chubby and Strantmont cases, then the end result should be treating social media as a distributor, not completely immune from liability. Um, And so I think that may be a reasonable interpretation, but it's been rejected by the court so far. Obviously, the Supreme Court hasn't weighed in, so they could take that position. But one of the um, one of the earliest cases that reached the circuit courts very clearly rejected that argument, um, saying that basically um, because once you have notice of something is defamatory, you would have to remove it. It would basically cause social media to anytime somebody complains. They immediately remove it because that way they'd avoid liability, whether or not it's defamatory. So um, I don't think that solution of just allowing them to be distributors would really work with social media. Um, but Justice Thomas is certainly, um, you know, makes a good argument that, you know, it would seem to be that's what they were intending because that's what the ch- in the Chubby case they held it was a distributor and wasn't liable. But um, but so he goes through basically why he thinks that's what Section 230 is really doing or should be doing. Um, and then in this latest case, the uh, Biden versus Knight 
or Trump versus Knight. It was renamed Biden versus Knight because this lawsuit was against the president in his official capacity. And so when you get a new president, you switch the names. But it is kind of odd that it's under Biden. Um, but there he was looking at, you know, what is our authority to regulate people's regulate, you know, private speech? And he noted that um, we have for uh, a class of uh, companies that we call common carriers. And these have for, you know, well before the establishment of the United States and England recognized that they can't deny service um, because you dislike them. They might be able to deny service because you didn't pay or you were really disruptive and got kicked off or whatever. And this would usually be transport originally. And then, um, but it's also now applies to telephone companies. And basically it's saying that um, these common carriers are basically like utilities and the utilities aren't allowed to discriminate based on viewpoint. Um, you know, they can't only provide electricity to Democrats and telephone services or can't limit who they provide to. And so um, he is suggesting in this latest opinion that social media companies look a lot more like these these common carriers or utilities. Um, and so Congress could, or he's suggesting that Congress could enact restrictions on their ability to discriminate based on political views. Um, but there's a couple problems with this um, hmm. in the nature uh, that are in the nature of social media and the nature of the ability to um, restrict. When we talk about utilities, it's a very binary binary thing. It's you can't you know use anything. You have to you have to serve everybody, and. I don't think that would that wouldn't work with social media, because while Twitter generally could serve everybody, lots of social media sites are very specific, and they want to limit, you know, what topics are discussed. You know, you can go to, mm-hmm. um, I think it's uh, Revelry. Is that the knitting site? You know, they oh, just yeah, want yeah, yeah. knitting there. Yeah. And so, you know, they wanted and they wanted to adopt a rule that says we don't want any political talk on here. That would be fine. But under Justice Thomas's analysis, as a common carrier, you couldn't make any limitation like that. You'd really have yeah. to accept all comers. Um, everyone would have to accept all comers if, okay. if, if you did it that way. Unless you had some sort of market cap, like once you get like 10 million users, then well, you have to change. Yeah, which you have would some, be... some non-viewpoint based limit on it. Like if, or if they didn't pay, you could kick them off or whatever, yeah. but you, you couldn't limit it. And so there's good reason to want to take, you know, viewpoint into account when setting up a social media site. So it would dramatically change the nature of a lot of social media sites. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, um, really difficult to um, be more nuanced than that if you're doing it on political viewpoints, because how do you, you know, what is, you know, when are they censoring you for your political viewpoints versus something else? How do we draw the line that, you know, is yeah. are you really dis- distinct, are you really, you know, discriminating against Republicans or are you discriminating against someone for a different reason? Um and I think courts would have a hard time, you know, drawing whatever that other line is, um, trying to figure it out. And it would be, it would again, you know, bog down these issues. And certainly part of Section 230 was trying to get government out of 
the way as much as possible on this to allow the free flowing of speech. Yeah. Well, so and, I, and the development of business in this brand new space as well, yeah. I'm sure. Um, and then finally, there's the, there is a line of cases that deal with utilities. And while utilities could be made to do all comers, you can't force a utility to carry political speech. And so there were the, the lead case dealt with a, a city that wanted the contracted with a private utility and it wanted to force that utility to uh, carry political propaganda in the bills. And, um, and so basically what you're doing there is you're compelling these private utility companies to um, deliver the government's political speech. So it's a compelled speech issue. And the court said, no, you can't do that. Um, and so really, if we are forcing social media companies to um, carry, um, you know, users who are espousing political beliefs that the social media company doesn't want to espouse, you're compelling them to, to carry that speech. And we can't do even being a utility doesn't justify the government compelling people to take that to carry speech they don't want to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's just there's a matter of scale when you have something like YouTube that is facilitating such a huge amount of information distribution. And I understand to some degree that they want to limit that uh, or to not host certain content. Let's just be very obvious. Like they don't want to host porn. And, and you know, so yeah. that they're, they're saying that that's obscene. But underneath the hood, the amount of manipulation that their algorithm does connecting users it's phenomenal, like like how there's no provisions that I've seen anywhere in the law that, that even recognizes that's what's going on with the way that information is being organized and distributed. And, and they're, it seems like they're trending toward giving more and more prominence to older players, to the MSNBC and the Fox and stuff, and creators such as me, up and coming, filling in a niche, a very small niche, uh, stuff are kind of getting pushed to the side. So there's this kind of um, there's the there's this potential for such great amounts of sharing of information that is stymied by certain realistic things like they ultimately they need to make money so they're going to go and serve people who can give them money and uh, ultimately they probably have some sort of political bias that they will uh, more uh, openly or, or closely push plus they have this all this morality that they want to put in to uh, be against hate and be for let's say equity diversity inclusion and so that's going to cause them to start to discriminate between people based on all these characteristics that they want to write. So I don't know to what extent government has any say, but the consumer is kind of left in the lurch here. Yeah, I mean, as as the general sense consensus or, or thought of how Section 230 should be interpreted, it really creates this massive, massive authority that's never existed in the before in these social media companies because. They have the complete ability to manipulate the speech that comes out, yet they aren't liable for it because all they're doing is saying, we'll let this person speak, but not let this person speak. Um, and I really think that that's, it's contrary to, um, you know, it's, well, it's certainly proven to be very negative. Now, there, there was a really interesting case that came out of the Ninth Circuit a couple years ago. It was roommates.com or something like that. And what what it held was that in this case, um, the website um, was liable for the discriminatory conduct of people who were posting apartments 
on their web apartments for rent on their website because roommates.com created a template and one of those templates or a couple of them dealt with issues of whether the, you had kids or not and what gender you were and they were violating um, the discrimination laws um, or the the posts ended up violating the discrimination laws because they said you know no kids and um, so when the roommates.com was sued, they said, no, we have Section 230. We didn't create these posts. And the court said, while you didn't create the content of the posts, you created the template that invited these users to, you know, uh, opine on these improper categories, like whether you have kids or not. And mm -hmm. therefore, um, your actions made you partially responsible for their speech because you were controlling the content of their speech to a certain extent. Huh. Um that's just weird yeah, because that isn't that freedom of association? I get to choose who I want to roommate with. And if I don't want to roommate with a child, like, like <laughs> well, you know, it's certain, you know, um, the, what they, the right to associate freedom of association is, um, it depends your rights. Government can still have anti-discrimination laws on that. Like if you want a roommate, you can't choose to have, you know, you can't say that I want, you know, no um, Norwegian roommates or no, you know, hmm. Asian roommates or something. You can't discriminate based on race in choosing. You can't. OK, so you can't say that out loud, but you can either accept or reject people later on down the road. But you're never doing it for that reason um, or you're not saying you're doing it for that reason. Whatever's in your heart, who knows? But Interesting. Um, the, the anti-discrimination laws are an inner are do interfere with our right to association and so what the courts have said is um, whether you can apply anti-discrimination laws um, will depend on the nature of the association and if you are just your average association um, like your average business because a business is an association they have association with their customers um, we will apply anti-discrimination laws but if you're an expressive association then you have a greater um, ability to discriminate. And so there's a couple, two cases dealing with gay rights in this issue. And this is yeah. the Hurley case, which came out of Boston and it had to do with the St. Patrick's Day Parade, and which was a private event. And the organizers did not want to allow the Gay Police Officers Association to march in the parade. And the court held that they had the right to do that because a parade is quintessential expressive association and the organizers have the right to control the nature of the message of that parade. And if they feel that allowing the gay police officers to march in it would dilute or change the message they wanted to convey, then um, it would violate their right to association and their right to speech. But, And then we have... Um, the Boy Scouts case where they said that uh, uh, you cannot be a scout leader if you're gay. And the court again held that the Boy Scouts was an expressive association meant to promote uh, clean and straight living, which was in their pamphlet. And therefore, because it's an ex expressive association, they have the right to discriminate against mm -hmm. someone if that would interfere with their rights. And this is the same thing that happened in that recent case dealing with that uh, beauty pageant where they wanted to – where the beauty pageant um, excluded uh, trans women from being in it. And the court said they can do that because it's expressive and their message is 
you know, doesn't include that. So they can exclude on that basis. Hmm. Um, but if it's a business, they don't have the same rights um, to exclude on that basis. Yeah. Um, it gets more confusing and it easily becomes confusing. But um, it generally, if you're like the, the lead case from the Supreme Court, it deals with the JCs, which is a charitable organization, and they didn't allow women to be voting members. And the court said, well, there's nothing about the JCs mission, which was mainly charitable, that would would be interfered with if we forced you to accept women. So you do have to accept women. Hmm. Okay. Um, and so that kind of goes with association. And I forgot where we started in this. Question. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we we get, got into the associative weeds there, but the, the magnitude of social media, again, Twitter to a lesser extent, but Facebook greatly and YouTube, well, I'm speaking personally here, uh, it doesn't seem like the, the law has any precedent to deal with such wide-ranging authority. And yeah. this authority is actually gets kind of scary because uh, for fa Facebook has actually done uh, experiments to change voting patterns in certain municipalities. These these companies can actually shape our government. Um, they are actually, in, in certain respects, more powerful than any uh, any private entity that we've known uh, before, even uh, to certain extent, uh, any uh, public entity we've known. So what do you see? Uh, do you see that yeah. there's going to be a clash, or do you see that they'll lobby their way into you know, getting away with I think there's going to be a clash one way or the other. I think, so there, I remember where I was going with this on the roommates.com. So you're at, you were brought up the right of association and, but I think the, what's relevant in the roommates case is a recognition that when a social media co company is taking steps to shape the message to such an extent there's a point where they cross the line and suddenly it becomes partially their speech because of how they're shaping the message. Now, the roommates.com was easy because they had easy to show that because they had developed the template. Yeah. But I think what the social media companies are doing is the same type thing. They're clearly shaping the message that's delivered. I mean, you can, you know, a variety yeah. of things that you can see it. I think, you know, the, the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story is the best example, mm -hmm. uh, the most dramatic example of how they are using their authority to censor, um, not just to uh, block speech that's objectionable, but to actually shape the entire message that's coming out of them and shape the narrative. The problem is how do you, prove that and how do you you know get under the hood because roommates.com had prepared a template so it was easy to yeah. prove you know how do we get there and that's why i think the veritas leaks have been so interesting um because they are at least anecdotal evidence to suggest that there really is this motive to shape what's going on out there mm -hmm. um but it's just gonna it's it's the type of thing that is doesn't easily lend itself to proof absent some smoking gun, you know, documents that kind of give the roadmap of this is how we're going to alter the the messages that are, that are coming off our sites. Um, but there but there is a level of interference that um, make that should turn the social media company sites into at least a partial speaker of the message um, so that they could be held liable. But we don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't know mm -hmm. exactly where that is or how to prove that yet. Um, yeah. So what do you recommend for people that are concerned about this and like where would we 
where do you suggest we put our energy into uh, to advocate for? Uh, your articles mention that if we focus on terms of service, uh, if we focus on uh, fair uh, rules that are transparent and that are equally or non-arbitrarily applied, uh, that that's it seems like that's a very strong place to start. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that if we could um, uh, get these basic due process protections in place, I think it would, you know, solve solve our the complaints about social media sem- um, censorship, or at least most of them. Um, one of the things that I hear from a lot of YouTubers is, if I just knew what the rules were ahead of time and they weren't going to be changed on me, then I could function my business and I could do it. Um, and I think that that's what the, you know, if we had the the due process protections, it would get us there. And then also the, the arbitrary enforcement is the other half of that. I think mm-hmm. that would solve most of our problems. Um, now, how to get there is really right now, you know, if we assume Congress is is basically worthless on this point, it's experimenting in lawsuits oh, and yeah. finding okay. the right lawsuit. And I would see, I, I would like to see something that where um, we have the fact that they have censored speech is done in a way that, that we could call it it's actually them speaking. So when they mm. censor you, they slander you. Um, and there was one case that um, had made this claim successfully, almost, um, where they the court held that the statement they were removed, the, the, their video was removed for um, because of uh, basically um, spamming conduct to build up the likes falsely. I forget the exact phrase that they had done it. Um, and but the notice basically, if you tried to go to that video, it'd say this video has been removed for violation of our terms of service. And the plaintiff said that that statement was slanderous because we didn't violate their terms of service, and they're, um, you know, so they're and they're just doing this for this, you know, claim that you know, um, that isn't based on the content of our video. It's based on this extraneous content. And so the court said that that was not blocked by Section 230, but um, in defamation. So defamation can be uh, a statement can be uh, defamatory per se or um, just generally defamatory. And if it's defamatory per se, there's presumed damages. But otherwise, you will have to show damages. And in this case, the plaintiff hadn't shown any damages. So it's he still end up losing. Okay. Um, yeah. But at least got past that hurdle. So I think trying to frame something like that where um, there is harm caused to you by how they removed your video, they made some type of affirmative statement, and they are the removal was not based on the content of the video, but based on you know some other, conduct like the you know um trying to falsely build up your likes using yeah yeah yeah. you know on twitter it would be you know using ghost multiple accounts or whatever um something like that or whatever um to try and and test it and then use that lawsuit to try and link these two provisions um or in general i think you know, the, there's this right, you know, it, it talks, there's clearly the, uh, a limitation on the right to censor. It should be done in good faith, according to Section 230. Um, so some other way to get that, the a claim for improper censorship. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if social media companies um, could be required to, you know, act, if we could require them to act in good faith, 
Um, at the very least, we'd get notice of it, the yeah. censorship, and that would take care of all the shadow censorship. Yeah. Uh, and then well, they're, they're already setting up like all these hate speech rules. Uh, you know, you could basically call anything harassment uh, if you look at it in the right light uh, or, you know. So at least I'm, I'm thinking about Reddit and how they've just been purging. Uh, yeah. Inconvenient views that are just as bad or just as good as anybody else's views but it goes against their narrative that they're obviously shaping obviously shaping a narrative over there. you know another way way of looking at legal challenges to the extent that these social media companies are censoring based on governmental pressure at some point um you know when the government tells you know tells these companies to do something even if they don't pass a law um uh, there can be enough pressure put that you could actually say that it is government censorship. So there was um, there's an old case that dealt mm. with this dealing with obscenity, but basically um, a state legislature created this advisory board that had the authority to declare conduct obscene or you know basically various things obscene. There wasn't any punishment from it. It was just this declaration of this is obscene. <laughs> and the court held that, that that still amounted to governmental censorship um, because the you know the the speaker would be feared to be labeled this, and then once yeah. they're labeled that, would the cops yeah. then try and enforce it or something? And oh, so the court okay. held that that action still amounted to censorship, even though it was just this body you know saying what it didn't like. Yeah. Um, and so it may be that you know. To the extent that, for example, um, uh, social media companies, if they were pressured by, you know, any of the elected officials after January 6th um, to get rid of people, um, you know, if you could show that they acted because they were pressured by government government officials, then you could then say that that censorship was private censorship. Hmm. Um, certainly, if the government starts enacting laws that you know require the removal of hate speech that'll violate the first amendment um because that's again going to be censoring um and you know hate speech is you know not a category under the first amendment that ha you know that can stand yeah um and so but i don't think they'll be i think they'll be smart enough not to do that um you know but it is difficult and you know we have now these states trying to uh, protect you know, unfair censorship. And that's ultimately going to fail because Section 230 itself, um, you know, has a provision that says any state laws that are inconse inconsistent with Section 230 are not valid. And so they'll be preempted by Section 230. So you're saying that state actions that's trying to in, uh, enforce uh, social media companies to stop with the censorship that we're talking about are doomed to fail because it violates the free speech of these private companies? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, it is it is really important to remember that social media companies do have First Amendment rights themselves and yeah. their First Amendment right is to choose who they associate with yeah. um, for for the purposes of speech. And yeah. so um, it, they're just so big. They're just so big. It's like another category of entity that we're dealing with. <laughs> yeah. But if you think about it, I mean, the, the fact is that the government has created this massive financial benefit in Section 230. Social media would not exist without Section 230. It just wouldn't be economically viable. They all be a student okay. to oblivion. Yeah. Um, 
And so we're giving these companies this massive financial benefit. Every cent of Facebook um, can be would not exist but for Section 230. So we have a right to ask for something in return. Hmm. And I think that's what the second section in, in 230C is trying to do. I think it was intended to be a trade-off saying, yes, we're going to give you immunity as long as you agree to only censor in this limited manner. And it goes back to the Chubby and Strandmont cases. You know, Chubby didn't censor at all, so they were immune. Strandmont did censor, but very lightly, but then they became a publisher. And I think the, to that Section 230 was designed to say, well, you can still censor lightly and we'll still uh, allow you to avoid liability. Because um, it really doesn't make any sense otherwise, because there's so few ways that you can be liable for censoring um, in general, because you have a First Amendment right to yeah. only speak yeah. what you want to speak. Yeah, or or and, uh, or uh, yeah, boost the signal that you want to boost. Yeah, exactly, and that's the, and so the, um, it really isn't doing much otherwise, um, mm-hmm. but we'll have to see where um, it is. But I think test lawsuits and just continued consciousness on it. I would like to see somebody try and make the claim that the censorship by, especially the stealth censorship by. Um, a social media company is extensive enough that they really should be treated as a speaker because they are forming the message. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's, you know, I think that's a, there's a claim there. It's just going to be a really hard one to prove. And the way these cases go is so in litigation, um, especially defamation cases, you'll see it tested after the lawsuits filed before the defendant will file an answer, they'll file a motion to dismiss. And that motion to dismiss basically says, you can't prove all the elements or I have some complete defense. And Section 230 is a, you know, is an immunity provision, so it's a defense. And so the issue of Section 230 usually gets decided at the motion to dismiss stage before there's been any discovery. Um, And you have to have really fairly concrete, you know, allegations to get to get to discovery. And in cases of conspiracy, which is going to be antitrust cases, the court has made it clear that you can't just say there's a conspiracy. You have to have concrete facts um, that show that there really is a conspiracy. Because you see this in antitrust all the time. You feel like these two companies are colluding to harm you. um, And but you don't know yet, and the courts have, have really made it very difficult to get to know because you can't get to discovery in, unless you have really yeah. concrete allegations. And you can't just make stuff up. As lawyers, you you know, we aren't allowed to really? just make stuff up. Yes. Oh. We have to um, base our, our claims on a good faith investigation, and especially yeah. in a complaint when you're affirmatively alleging facts. You know, you can you could allege facts based on something we call information and belief, but... The courts will probe that when it comes to conspiracy claims to say, you know, Mm -hmm. what information do you have and is it concrete enough? And so I think that making this claim that the social media companies censorship is so extensive that it really is shaping the message and they should be treated as a speaker. um, I think we all feel the sense that that's happening. But, you know, trying to get enough information to actually allege that would be difficult. But, you know, we the more we learn, I mean, it may be that some of the 
the facts that that have been disclosed through these leaks are enough to give you you know concrete enough allegations but it's also super expensive to go up against these social media companies because they hire oh, yeah. the most expensive law firms they've got basically unlimited resources yeah. um and you know you're so you're gonna have to have a lot of money behind it as well but yeah um i think you know, there's, there's some hope in it 10 million dollar gun to fire it yeah yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's the court process is not always the best way to bring things, but I think with when Congress is so tied up right mm-hmm. now, I think um it's maybe the only hope and it's kind of experimenting on different ways. It is good that um that the Supreme Court hasn't given a definitive interpretation of 230 and mm-hmm. that means that the lower courts, you know, have, you know, wiggle room. More discretion than they would otherwise. Okay. Um to accept a good and creative ruling. Um, the other thing is that um, most of these cases don't even try and link these two provisions because they don't really make sense. Because one is, you're usually if you're suing for defamation, you want the company to censor censor someone's speech, so you aren't so you don't even raise sub two, saying you know as a, uh, and how that affects because you're just complaining that they should have censored, yeah. and you're complaining they censored too much. Yeah. Um, and so there, there isn't, I think the, there's still plenty of possibility that a brave judge could, you know, adopt a good interpretation of section 230 that would resolve these issues. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll, it'll take the right facts and the right judge and all the stars are going to have to be aligned. Yeah. Well, thanks for the crash course and 230 speech prote- protections. Uh, it's really relevant to me, but uh, I really needed to you know, get an insider view, uh, at least uh, inside your head's insider view of it. Yeah, that no, was my pleasure. It's, um, I mean, I find this issue fascinating. I think it's, it, it's, it is very complicated. I think that, um, you know, I think it would make a lot more understandable with some more time to do, to get kind of some of the basic first amendment um, rules down. Um, so I'd be happy to, if you're interested, I'd be happy to kind of take a step back and kind of give a couple one-on-ones um, because when you look at all those, you'll, you'll, you see where the problems come with this issue. And I think one of the things that people most often miss is, is the really the, authority of the First Amendment rights of social media companies to associate and how any rule that is prohibiting them from discriminating based on political viewpoints um, is going to crash into their the social media company's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, generally you as an individual have a First Amendment right to discriminate based on viewpoint all you want. You have yeah. a right to choose who you talk politics with, and the social yeah. media companies do. Um, but I do think that we could make them uh, put their rules in writing ahead of time and enforce them in some type of fair manner and transparent manner. Um, have you been following at all what Facebook's been doing? No. With it, they've got they've created this whole council, and basically it's a mini court system. Oh God! But yeah, it, it's you know if. If that was done, it's actually they've actually taken a, a I, I've been impressed with how they've been analyzing the issues and they certainly have. Oh, recognized, really? Yeah, they've they've recognized the importance of fair notice um, and context and such. Um, mm-hmm. And um, 
And if those are actually going to end up being enforceable, that's going to give give users a lot more rights. But right now, they have full discretion on who they take. And while Facebook has promised to follow their rulings, there's nothing that really requires them to do so. But mm. in theory, on Facebook, you've got more rights than you've ever had before because they've these decisions have made it clear that any censorship rule has to be in writing has to be clear enough for someone to understand and has to be evaluated in context oh. they had one case i can't it was from uh one of the southeast asian um uh, country i can't remember which one but they had used um, a statement that could have been taken as a slur, but in context, you knew it wasn't meant to be a slur. And um, and they reversed and said Facebook shouldn't have removed this post because context. It's a really nuanced decision. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm being, I know I'm being a little vague with it. It's been a little while since I read it, but um, it's a great decision. It's exactly what we would want social media companies to have to do. And, you know, purportedly Facebook is saying they have to do that, but they don't they aren't really doing yeah. it because they, they aren't yeah. willing to be bound by it. But Well, that and the amount of content that they'd have to sift through, uh, you know, as opposed to just having an algorithm deal with it and then a completely non-responsive customer service labyrinth that you put the people through, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it, that, that is one of the things with the scale of this. And that was um, – yeah. I, I recently uh, asked a couple law professors who were doing a video – conference and they had open questions on this and that was their mm -hmm. objection to my assert my claim of due process protections even is it is just you know it, any type of, of process like that um, really does bog down the process but I, I think that's something that needs to be invested in I mean they're making enough money to do it um, to give a fair appeals process um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it would also would be a lot easier if they simply knew that you know, in order to censor speech, they had to have a rule and then they yeah. had to tell you and give you a timestamp and yeah. give you an opportunity to correct it or not. Yeah. Um, I think they'd come up with a lot clearer rules and we wouldn't, that would resolve a lot of our complaints without bogging them down because I think it would just function. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah. we'll see. So we'll see. Lot, lot to look okay. at too. Well, thank you very much, Ramsey, for your afternoon. It was, was a my pleasure. Part. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to have you back on to speak more about the first A, number one A. Maybe we can like Certainly. dabble in the two, but we don't have to go there. Yeah, the Second <laughs> Amendment is a morass in and of itself. So and then I just had to say one other thing. Um, oh. which is that um Megan Murphy's hair is amazing, I have to say. So, you know, Since she went to yeah, I was going to bring up her case because she's trying to sue Twitter, uh, as you probably know. But her hair, yeah. her Mexico hair, it's just yeah. something else. It's you just commented on a while back, and I was like, <laughs> and I made the same. I noticed the same thing. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.